Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, They Didn't Believe the Women. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 8, 2012. It's Easter Sunday. When my father died in 1998, he donated his body to science for medical research. Eighteen months later, FedEx delivered his cremains to our house, and I remember thinking that there had to be a better way to return such a sacred gift. I opened the box, untied the twisty that secured the plastic liner, and experienced what others had described. These were not nice fluffy ashes, but gritty shards of bone. I took a pinch of the coarse remains of my father and rubbed it back and forth between my thumb and fingers. This year, Easter falls on my father's birthday, April 8th, and I found myself resonating with Nora Gallagher's friend Harriet. In Gallagher's book, Practicing Resurrection, Harriet recalls sitting in church at the National Cathedral in Washington. In the course of a boring sermon, the priest asked the congregation in unctuous tones, Now what do you really want for Christmas this year? Harriet told Nora Gallagher, I nearly rose from my pew. I was gathering myself up until I looked over at my sister who was giving me that look, and I sat back down. But what I wanted to do was to stand up and shout out, I would really like to believe in the resurrection. <coughs> Doubts about the resurrection didn't begin with the 18th century Enlightenment, 19th century Darwinists, or with 20th century postmodernists. Only our modern hubris could believe that we today have finally advanced beyond the crude superstitions of illiterate peasants, who in 33 AD were so gullible that they didn't know that corpses don't rise from the dead. No, the readings this week show that lots of people doubted the resurrection. The first to disbelieve were, in fact, the first believers. Women took spices and perfumes to the tomb after the crucifixion to anoint a corpse, not to witness a resurrection. When Mary saw the empty tomb, she thought that someone had stolen the body. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. She wept and cried, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this so-called stolen body scenario was what he calls widely circulated in his day. When the women told the eleven disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, we read in Mark 16, 11, they did not believe it. Luke 24, 11 is even more blunt. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That first Sunday night, the eleven disciples cowered behind locked doors. And why not? 
it was not unreasonable for them to fear for their own lives. Later, two witnesses reported their encounter with Jesus to the eleven, but they did not believe them either. And even Jesus himself rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Thomas, of course, became the most famous doubter, and in what might have been Jesus' last resurrection appearance, we read in Matthew 28:17, there were still some who doubted. At some point, though, doubt and confusion gave way to deep-seated conviction. Luke writes that Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. The panic of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to their bold proclamation. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. When commanded by the religious authorities to stop preaching, Peter and John replied, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They claimed they had eaten with the resurrected Jesus and that many witnesses could attest to his public appearances. And so Acts 4.33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their bravado would have ended easily enough if someone had produced Jesus' body. But the absence of his body in the empty tomb pointed towards something far more radical than a mere spiritual or figurative resurrection. Other people mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. When some Athenians heard about the resurrection, we read in Acts 17.32, they sneered. Porcius Festus, the Roman governor of Judea under Nero, confessed that he was at a loss to know what to do with the prisoner Paul. He said, They didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. The next day, as Paul gave his legal defense, Festus screamed at him, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Peter denied the charge that he had propagated what he calls a cleverly invented tale. While Paul rebutted Corinthians, who said that there's no resurrection of the dead for anyone at all. So disbelief in the resurrection was very much part of the original story. It's possible that the first believers were, as Blaise Pascal put it, deceived or deceivers. In other words, either badly deluded and wrong, or blatant liars and immoral. But neither of those explanations has the ring of truth to me. The only thing they stood to gain for their beliefs was political persecution and social marginalization. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul raised the stakes even higher when he insisted that no person should believe a lie about the resurrection and that they certainly shouldn't preach a lie. 
If Jesus is not raised, then Christian faith is a cruel hoax and a silly fiction. I believe the first believers partly because of their original disbelief, their own and that of their detractors, and because of the price they pay to proclaim the resurrection. Peter, Paul, and many other unknown and unnamed believers died in Rome because of their conviction about the resurrection. In the end, Peter challenges each one of us in Acts 4.19, judge for yourselves. Evidence and argument only get you so far. On the one hand, the first witnesses insisted that their message was what they called true and reasonable, for the events were not done in a corner, but were entirely public in nature. The story could be corroborated or refuted, at least at some level, and for a few years. On the other hand, Paul admitted that his gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. Luke acknowledges that the resurrected Jesus was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Acts 10, 41. Their witness amounted to what the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once called public evidence for a mystery. I believe the belief of the women who were the last at the cross and the first at the empty tomb. I believe the first believers and stand on the shoulders of other believers across time and space who've believed confessed and taught that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that in so doing he vanquished sin, death, and evil. And so with readers from around the world, I join the Easter chorus, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For books this week, I review a title called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. The author is Michelle Alexander. New York, The New Press, 2010, with the revised edition in 2012. The book is 312 pages. After graduating from Stanford Law School, clerking for Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman, and working for a decade as a civil rights attorney, Michelle Alexander of Ohio State University concluded that, quote, mass incarceration in the United States had emerged as a stunningly comprehensive and well-disguised system of racialized social control that functions in a manner strikingly similar to Jim Crow. Her wonderfully polemical book explains how and why she reached that radical conclusion. <coughs> In the last 30 years, America's prison population has skyrocketed from 300,000 to more than 2 million. About 7.3 million Americans are under some form of penal control, 
jail, prison, parole, or probation. Our incarceration rates dwarf those of other developing countries, including Russia, China, and Iran. Germany, for example, imprisons about 93 of every 100,000 adults. In America, we imprison 750 per 100,000. Our penal system is only a failure if its purpose is to control crime, which it doesn't. But in, but in Alexander's view, it's a raging success because its purpose is not crime prevention, but social control. Roughly 65 million Americans have a criminal record, including people never convicted of anything. And the practical consequences of this can be catastrophic and last a lifetime. If you have a criminal record, you're often barred from voting, jury duty, and then of any federal assistance for food, housing, health care, or employment. Your driver's license might be revoked. And consider that menacing little box on every application you ever completed. Have you ever been arrested? Our penal system is thus what Alexander calls a form of apartheid unprecedented in world history. Mass incarceration aggressively targets black men in particular. There are now more African-American adults under penal control today than were enslaved in 1850. This has happened during a time when crime rates have dropped and not in spite of affirmative action or colorblindness, but precisely because of them. The engine that drives the mass incarceration of blacks is the war on drugs, launched by Ronald Reagan in 1982 and supported by every politician since then. Clinton, by the way, in her view, was the worst. No one wants to give the slightest appearance of being soft on crime. Alexander identifies many causes of our new caste system. There's collective denial in our age of affirmative action, a black president, superstars like Oprah and Colin Powell, and some real progress on racial problems. The professionalization of civil rights experts has separated leaders from everyday people. Colorblindness short circuits explicit discussions about race. Many people profit from mass incarceration, including local governments that receive federal assistance and the prison industry that keeps expanding. To dismantle the system would cause severe economic repercussions. And as Alexander admits, it's almost impossible to push an agenda that defends criminals. In her last chapter, Alexander admits that she doesn't propose any solutions. She's careful to affirm the importance of individual responsibility, but generally describes urban blacks as helpless victims. What we really need is a new public consensus that is compassionate rather than punitive. But it's hard to imagine that will ever happen when so many people benefit from a system that they perceive as much to their own advantage.
Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. <coughs> For film this week, I review Eclipsing Empire, Paul, Rome, and the Kingdom of God from the year 2008. These 12 episodes in two DVDs by the New Testament scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan are culled from their many pilgrimage tours to Turkey. The production quality isn't bad, but it's quite informal. Crossan introduces each 20-minute episode with an overview then we join the tour group as the camera features the incredible sights among the archaeological ruins. And then the final 15 minutes or so feature the group's evening lecture by Borg or Crossan. If you've read Borg or Crossan, you'll be familiar with most of the content. They link Jesus and Paul together in continuity against the hubris and power of imperial Rome. In contrast to a kingdom of Rome led by a divine Caesar and characterized by peace through military violence and domination, the Christian story celebrates a kingdom of God founded on justice. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. Borg and Crossan have their own opinions. To take one example, correcting Luke's errant views about Paul. But I still enjoyed watching this series in an adult education forum at church. This is only one of the title in a progressive Christianity series, which you can find on the web at livingthequestions.com, all one word. Eclipsing Empire, Paul, Rome, and the Kingdom of God. And finally, for Easter Sunday, we've posted Amaretti, Most Glorious Lord of Life, by Edmund Spencer. Spencer lived from 1552 to 1599. Most glorious Lord of life, that on this day didst make thy triumph over death and sin, and having harrowed hell didst bring away captivity, thence captive us to win. This joyous day, dear Lord, with joy begin, and grant that we for whom thou didst die, being with thy dear blood clean washed from sin, may live forever in felicity, and that thy love we weighing worthily may likewise love thee for the same again. And for thy sake, that all like dear didst buy, with love may one another entertain. So let us love, Dear love, like as we ought, love is the lesson which the Lord us taught. And happy Easter from journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 8th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.